Last week, Louis started a discussion about church, basically, looking at 1 Timothy. If you remember, the church that Timothy was pastoring was Ephesus. And Paul had been more than once there at Ephesus. One time he spent two years there. He had been teaching in Ephesus on an ongoing basis. And then he wrote the the letter to the Ephesians, and then he goes back to Ephesus after that, spends time there with Timothy, then he leaves Timothy and goes to Macedonia. While Timothy is there trying to uh, follow the instructions that were given, there appears from this letter that opposition came up against him, and uh, it would be just like anything else if you've ever been in a situation where they were trying to assert themselves, they would say possibly that, no, this is what Paul said, and Timothy is having to argue and say, no, no, this is what Paul said, and so there was a conflict that was happening, and Paul is here in Macedonia, and realizing that's what's going on, he writes a letter to Timothy, and he's basically giving him instructions on how to do church, how to be, uh, behave in the household of God, and to support all of the things that Paul had already previously said. Much of the letters that you read in the New Testament are letters addressing something that Paul or the other writers had spoken to them personally, and then they're reinforcing it by the time it's written. This book, uh, 1 Timothy, um, it was near the end of the writing of the Gospels. Um, All of the other letters uh, from Paul, except for Titus and 2 Timothy, will have been written. 1 Peter and 2 Peter would have been written. James, obviously, is, is an old letter. So basically, all those letters would have been circulated, and they would have been available for people to address and to understand. And then Paul adds, on top of that, this letter to 2 Timothy with instructions for them on how to proceed forward. And so we're looking at that and dealing with that conflict. And so I'm going to be addressing after chapter one is more of a personal uh, uh, discussion to Timothy and a personal encouragement. He says to him uh, in chapter one, the, the reason that the reason for our instruction is for a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's verse five of chapter one. That's a sermon in itself, obviously. But this encouragement to remain on task and avoid distractions and disputes and things that aren't important to the mission is what happens. And so then in chapter 2, which is what we'll be looking at today, you should be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. And there we begin some practical approach of how to deal with this conflict that's happening. I'm going to read you lyrics from a time of yore. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? And go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see that Our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Older people in the room will recognize that. (laughs) 
It's not a church. It doesn't sound bad. Everybody knows your name. Our troubles are all the same. Everyone's glad you came. It's from a bar, from the series Cheers. And it's the mentality of every group, if you will. You know, when you see kids in neighborhoods that struggle to find uh, uh, a value or importance, they'll join a gang with the same idea, the same mentality. They, they know my name. We're part of a group. It's that cohesiveness. It's, a, it's an inner desire to fellowship and to belong. And, and that's something God made in us. It's not good for man to be alone. I bring that up because I think that as Timothy was dealing with these Judaizers, people who wanted to impose more legal restrictions to deal with issues like the Sabbath and washings and, and different types of religious activities to, to elevate the people to a more godly pace, Timothy was dealing with the faith in Christ and the importance of the gospel message, and he was trying to promote that, and that was creating this conflict, and that's what they were dealing with. I think in our church, we don't have those people uh, necessarily trying to accomplish that, but I think that what we would struggle with, if Timothy, if, if Paul were to writing this letter to First Bilingual Church, we might struggle with that cheers mentality where if we were sent to a mission field to accomplish God's purposes, and the mission field isn't embracing us, there's a tendency to go find a safe place and huddle and wait till the trouble goes away. And, and we take care of each other in our huddle and we look after one another and we love one another and we welcome other people as they come. But that sense of, you know, huddling down, uh, avoiding danger, I think would be what Paul would say, first bilingual, pay attention that you're not becoming too inward-minded, and that you need to pay attention to the mission, the reason that you're here. And so he, in, in the same vein as he writes to Timothy in his circumstance, the same message applies. It's a matter of focus and priority. What are you paying attention to, and how will you best do that? So you go to chapter two, and he starts with, first of all, first of all, prayer. Before I get into anything else, and, all, and he will get into much, he'll talk about the roles of men and deacons and elders and women and, and widows and, and all of that information he will deal with as he goes through his letter. And Pastor Elise will bring forth much of that in the next few weeks. But before I go there, Timothy, I'm going to address the issue of prayer. Prayer starts the discussion. And it's important, I think... And so I was looking at it, because if you see chapter one starts, let's just read it first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll make mention of what you see there. First of all, chapter two, verse one. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that you may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without dissension. 
the prayer beginning in chapter one, I want you to pray. I mean, verse one, I want you to pray. And then verse eight, I want all men to pray, the beginning and ending there. It is the it is the necessary instruction for us as a people, whenever there is any kind of conflict, we need to introduce always the heart of God. And we do that in prayer. If you and I are discussing something and there may be a difference of opinion and something we need to deal with and work out, it is always advisable for us to bring God along in prayer. And in bringing God in and recognizing the presence of God in our prayers, we're, we're, bringing, we're giving the Holy Spirit opportunity to remind us of the truths that we know from his word, of the, of the heart of God, of the desires of God. And so that, that brings us together. Once God, if, if you have a priority and I have a priority and God introduces his, reminds us of his priority, that takes precedent. And that gives us the removal of that possible conflict because we're focusing again on what God would have us to focus on. And I believe that's what Paul's doing when he brings these pr- prayers and he says, here's what you do. You start with prayer and this will give you focus. This will remind you to stay on track. This will keep you from going off in other directions. Our activities always should begin with prayer. Be bathed in prayer as we do things. And then prayer as we reflect on what God has done. I put a a note, prayer or the lack thereof indicates the direction of our hearts. Prayer is before we act and, and after we act. Congregational prayer unites us to keep us focused on his kingdom and his righteousness first. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And we do that in congregational prayer. If you were paying attention to Mario's prayer uh, a few minutes ago, he prayed this. I mean, I was blessed, Mario, but you stole all my thunder and we could go home now. <laughs> I mean, that the heart of your prayer was, in fact, the heart of this instruction. As we're desiring to be mission-minded, paying attention to the work God has given us, and excited about the work that God has given us to do. And so he, the, that focus is what happens. And so we have, every Sunday, one of the elders comes up and reads from the scriptures. We're going to be reading through Hebrews until we get to the end of it. And to remind you what's happening with that is we're coming forward as a congregation, all of us here, we're opening up the scriptures, and as the reading is happening, we are all hearing from God. God is speaking to all of us through his word. This is the message for first bilingual that morning through his word. And we hear what God has to say. And he exalted Jesus Christ in the passage. It reminded us he's greater than Moses. He is, um, he is worthy of our praise and of our worship and of, of our enthusiasm to follow after him. So as that message is being brought to all of us, we're hearing from God. And then the man here, as he responds You need to join with him. He is praying a prayer that isn't a personal prayer. It's a congregational prayer. And he's praying in response to what he has read. And he's saying back unto God how we would respond as a people to what has just been spoken through God's word. Um, We do have prayer times during the month where we pray uh, about different things. And occasionally we'll bring forth uh, uh, 
personal ailments and things that are happening in our lives. But that prayer, that prayer that's happening in the morning is a, is a conversation. And it's your need to be included. So when the man comes up and says, turn to your scriptures, you may be familiar with the scripture or you may feel like I'm, I'm not, you need to turn to it, you need to hear it at least and pay attention because you want to respond to God as well. You want to support and, and as a congregation, we're responding back to God in prayer in one heart. The way we pray is the way we go. It's what we're paying attention to. And so we should be energized in the direction of our prayer. So if you look at it, he begins with urging prayers and entreaties and, and, and different styles of, uh, you have different reasons why you pray for people, you're interceding for folks, you're praying on, on behalf of somebody, uh, different, uh, and, and thanksgiving, obviously. But the instruction is that there would be prayers. And verse, tell us, verse two tells us who to pray for. He says, I want prayers to be made on behalf of all men, and I think in all men will understand what he's praying for them as we look at that same phrase, all men, in verse 4. But then he adds, kings and all who are in authority. And here, Paul includes a so that. So that's our gift in scripture. They give us the reason why he just said what he said. So that refers to what, why we pray for the rulers. So we pray for them so that we may live, lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness all godliness and dignity. This connection of leadership governing the authorities and kings to tranquil and quiet lives is an association of the world where we live, this is not our home, the world where we live has governing authorities whose priorities may not be God's authorities or, or his priorities, and so there'll be differences and things that they'll do. Our prayer is that what the government does to impact our lives doesn't keep us from being able to go forth and tell, share the gospel with our neighbors, with people we don't know. We, we want to be able to do that, and in where we live right now, we are able to do that, and we're grateful. It isn't that we're not impacted. Some of you who are working with our children have been asked to uh, take classes and uh, get a, a, a scan or something of, of some sort. This is something the government has required of us. So you're praying for rulers and authorities. They are requiring of us. Um, it's an attempt to make sure that children are safe. Um, and I believe in our congregation, our children are very safe. But we're responding to that legal uh, direction that's been given to us, that's part of what's going on here is we're praying for men who are in authority so that we can continue to have lives that aren't focused on dealing with the, that, that structure. If you're witnessing as uh, Anna and Amundo did in Morocco, if you're witnessing there, you have to be careful if the authorities find out, you'll end up in jail or worse. And so they don't have a quiet and tranquil life in order to present the gospel. We do, and we should be grateful, and that should be part of our thanksgiving, and we should be participating as much as possible in the mission because our current government circumstances aren't inhibiting us from doing what we can. I'm sure there are th some incidents where things are happening, but for the most part, you know, we have the freedom to share the truth and we need to do that. We lead, lead tranquil and quiet lives doesn't mean we're we're off by ourselves. It's not a hermit mentality, but it's a, a life that is 
available to accomplish this, the purpose of the God. And so he says, in godliness, you see there, godliness and dignity. Godliness, of course, a right um, actions directed by God, our righteousness in God. And dignity is more of a, that honorable uh, interaction with men. Um, we live a life that isn't offensive to men so that they, they aren't, so they're able to hear from us the gospel. The gospel is offensive, right? The gospel says, if you don't know Christ, you're going to hell. You'll be condemned by your sins. That's offensive. That's offensive enough. It doesn't have to be included by us being uh, unkind and rude and selfish in our lives. We need to live honorable, serious lives, that dignity of, of life that, uh, that gives us some credibility when we speak forth the gospel. Um, Peter tells those who are following after God, to do so, so that those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And, and in Proverbs, the teacher says, don't let kindness and truth leave you. Kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so that you will find favor and good repute, good reputation, in the sight of God and man. The elders, as you'll see later, are called into a people who have a good reputation among the unchurched. And so we're living these lives that are necessary in order to us not to be, so that we're not disqualified from presenting the gospel and it being received in truth. And so that's the focus of that prayer for these kings and those who are in authority. And verse 3 says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Paul has no problem writing God, our Savior. In the same book, he says, Jesus Christ, our Savior, or in Titus, he says, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our God. He associates them the same because he knows that Christ is God. And, and so he will refer to him and them interchangeably. He's, he's not confused. He just understands the truth that God has given. So this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, who desires for all men to be saved. There's that all men phrase. So we pray for all men and kings in authority. And the kings in authority, so that we have this tranquil opportunity to present the gospel. We pray for all men, what do we pray? The same desire that God has, that all men would be saved. And come to the knowledge of the truth. I when I looked at that, you know, you could see coming to the knowledge of the truth is salvation. But in looking at the way Paul writes, this phrase, knowledge of the truth, is, is a new one for him. If you look at his letters, he wrote all of those letters that, before Timothy. And then when he wrote Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, these are his last three letters that he wrote, he adopted this phrase, knowledge of the truth. Prior to that, he would say knowledge of the Son of God, knowledge of God, knowledge of the truth. But it was always, and, and, the, and Peter and James are the same way. It was always, this is the apostles' teachings. This is the information that tells us how to follow God. This is what Jesus told us. These are the teachings that we promote, we, we present, and we defend. And anything outside of those is wrongful teaching, and we would have you avoid it. And so there's a growing in that knowledge of the truth. So as we come in, uh, to church on Sunday morning, we're teaching that knowledge of the truth. 
It, when the letter to the church at Ephesus, when he spoke to them about the equipping of that church, he said, I gave, you know, apostles and pastors, etc. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So you see the knowledge of the Son of God isn't just that salvation knowledge, but the knowledge of the Son of God as we grow in him. In fact, the prayer in Colossians when he prays, he says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So it's not just salvation, but that knowledge about the teachings of God, the Didache, if you remember in our uh, studies years ago. That's Colossians 1.10. And Paul says to Titus, uh, he's, Paul, he defines himself in verse 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. And so this, this desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the church truth, I would say that to be saved is that evangelism, conversion discussion that we are very excited and want to see happen. It's important to us. And then knowledge of the truth is the discipleship discussion where those who have made that decision, who have come to Christ, need to grow in Christ, need to learn about the truth about Christ, need to learn the Bible in Christ. And so his desire, God's desire is such, and as we pray for all men, we pray that they are experiencing that as the efforts of what we're doing. We're paying attention to this issue of men being saved. This is the heart of God. He desires that all men be saved. That's his heart. If you're dealing with a circumstance and you're wondering what's going on and you're trying to pay attention to what God wants, find the unsaved people and know that he wants them to be saved. That's his heart. That's what he wants. That's his desire. If you're seeing Christian people who have declared themselves to belong to him, but they haven't paid attention to his word and grown in it, his desire is that they would. That's his heart. That's his desire. That's what should be our, our thrust and our intention. So he says, first of all, pray these things. If you pray these things, then your effort should be in that direction to know these, these truths and to walk in them. So then he describes it. And again, when you see verses five and six, you're looking at something that Paul wouldn't write to Timothy as if Timothy didn't know this. And he's not writing it as if it's the first time. He's writing it because people are opposing this. People are saying things different than this. And so Paul's reasserting it, writing it down in a letter so that Timothy has it there. And it said, you know, you guys are saying that he said this and he said that, but here's what he said. It's written down right here for you and for me. And that is verse five. There is one God. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Therefore, it's the, this, we have the gospel one God, the judge and creator of all, and a mediator that comes to bring us to God. One mediator, Acts tells us in 412, 
There's no other name by which we can be saved. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This was the right understanding of the position that we have, that we need Christ to come to God. There is one God, and the mediator is also God. He is the one by whom we approach this God. And the reality of the truth that, because they would have been arguing against this other, and, and churches still today, that this God became man. Fully God, fully man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says in the first chapter of John. He became man, the man, Christ Jesus. And then he gave himself a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. Here I think what I am personally convicted in reading this passage, and I pray you would join me in that, in a recognition that we should be always more and more amazed by that truth. It's something we found out long ago. My first discovery of this truth for myself in the reality of it was in 1977. That's over 40 years ago. So is it old news? When did you find out? You came to Christ. You found out he died for your sins and you were grateful and you turned to receive him. And, and that happened years ago. And now is it old news? A statement like this, that he would do this. I'm always... When I'm reading through Romans and I get to chapter 8 and I read this passage from verse 32 of chapter 8, he says, speaking of the Father, he who did not spare his own son, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. I pray God we appreciate a God praying in the garden. Is there another way? Can I find another way? Do I have to drink this cup, the cup of death? And the answer from God is silence. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? The reality of a God who would come and, and die for us should never be old news. That should impress us more and more. Because each day, brothers, we, we understand how unworthy we are. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the word of God. We've learned from it. We've been walk, taught to walk in it. And yet we still sin. And we recognize how dependent we are on the grace and the mercy of God. Each day we should become more and more amazed that he saved us. That he died for us. That should be very exciting to you and to me. This should be what matters most. This morning before church I went to Food for Less by my house. And uh, I, I mentioned to Carrie, I said, I think this must be the first day of football because everyone was wearing a jersey, you know? And I'm sure if I would have asked them, they would have told me what team they're supporting and how much, how good their team is and how it compared to others, et cetera. They would have demonstrated a lot of enthusiasm as it's even in the clothes that they wear. It, 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 it is shameful, Lord, that we have less enthusiasm for the reality of this truth. God gave himself a ransom. A ransom had to be paid. A ransom had to be paid. My sins were mine, and they condemned me. Rightfully and justfully so, I would perish in hell forever. That's what has to happen. I am, a, I am bound by my, my sins to death. And a ransom is required to deliver me from that. And there's nothing I can do to pay the ransom. And a God, the creator of heaven and earth, 
the almighty, unneeding king in his grace takes my sin and is crushed on the cross for me. I should tell somebody about that. I should be excited to tell somebody about that. That's big news. And if I'm, my attention is on doing church or paying attention to different ministries and different things in such a way that that is just absorbing me and, and, and I get distracted from the mission, which is to tell the people about the truth about God, then I miss the point. That's why this prayer, first of all, I pray, I ask you to pray for all men that God desires all of them to be saved. That's your mission. That's why you're here. If you're huddled up and you're not doing that, you've forgotten the mission. So I want you to pray this prayer to remind you to pray for the lost, to pray for those who need to know this truth, and then share it with them. I heard Recently, somebody asking if all the lost people we're praying for are saved, how many would that be? Are we, continually to be fa- are we continuing to be faithful in praying for the lost? I pray for lost neighbors, and they haven't come to Christ. I continue to pray for them. I need to be more fervent in it. But as you meet people who don't know Christ, we tend to be a little bit put out by them. They're, they're a distraction, a bother. You know, they're, they, they make life less comfortable these sinful people. And God would say, no, 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 they're, they're the mission field. They're why you're here. They're the ones you need to talk to. Sure, they'll make your life uncomfortable. They're sinful. They're trapped in their sins. You were too. I delivered you. Share the truth of your deliverance with them. What else would you do? You have the truth, the words of deliverance. Share those with them. He, shared, he spoke to Titus, the letter he wrote right after 1 Timothy. I love this verse. I've quoted it to you before. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And he says, Paul says to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, there it is again, those lives, in the present age, amongst these people, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, not looking for these circumstances to be good for us, but rather we know he's coming again, and we're grateful for it, and he's going to make all things right. That's where our hope is, but... The glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself, again, he gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us back from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We are a people who have been saved, set apart by him, saved by him. He gave himself. In the previous verse, the Father gave the Son. Both of those actions are incomprehensible truth that God be willing to die for us. That is a sacrifice worthy of praise and promotion that doesn't dwindle but grows. It should grow each day we think about it. And if we're not thinking about it, something's wrong. If we're not reminding ourselves about this gospel and about the truth of the salvation that we have in him, something is wrong. We need to focus on this truth and and be remembering that the difference it made for us because 
our intent and our purpose is for it to make a difference for someone else as well. So the knowledge of the truth is captured in verses five and six of Second Timothy, First Timothy chapter two, and then he goes on to seven. Now seven again would be verse seven would be something that Paul is not directing to Timothy. Um, it would be directed for Timothy to use in defense of the teachings. Because he says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am not lying. I am, t- I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So he, he's basically bringing the authority that he's been given as Paul the apostle. And he's putting in a letter and giving it to Timothy. So those who are opposing Timothy and saying different things about what Paul is saying... He can cite them and say, look, this, this Paul, our apostle, the one who has given us this truth, he has given it, and here it is, you know, and he's endorsing this, and he's standing by Timothy, basically, in this discussion. And so that's why he brings forth that information in verse 7. And he ends it with saying, as a teacher, this is what he was appointed for, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I looked at that, uh, faith and truth. They're two different things, and so I'm wanting to appreciate Paul was doing that intentionally. And so I think it it follows the pattern of what we've been talking about, because faith, as Paul describes it in chapter 2 of Ephesians, is the gift God gives for us to have salvation. That's the evangelical faith in Christ. That's where salvation comes from is in faith. And truth would be the knowledge of the truth or discipleship. So I think he's preaching to the Gentiles in faith and truth. Once again, we have the idea of conversion, evangelism, and discipleship, teaching the gospel, teaching the truths that we've been given by the apostles. It could be just he's a faithful teacher, but I think that he is saying those words uh, specifically for that purpose here at verse, verse 7. And then verse 8, it has a therefore. And so you're praying these things, and I've told you what you need to be praying for, and I know told you why that's important. Uh, Paul it says that, so therefore, having instructed you on what the gathered church needs to pray about, then he says, I want ev- the men in every place, every gathering, to pray. What will they pray? Well, that's already been given. That they would pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Holy hands is not so important, the physical standing there like this. But the idea is these. Where have they been and what have they been up to? You know, holy hands, hands that were set apart for a purpose. The purpose is the mission that we've been given. And so the activities of these hands as we serve God and honor God and make them available to God are a demonstration of, our, of the holiness of God, the intent of God. Yesterday, we came in the morning to uh, do the yard work here, and Anthony, who comes as a volunteer, he's, he's not committed to it, but he shows up, and he showed up yesterday, and I had him trim a tree, and he did an excellent job with his hands, and I was totally blessed by his heart and his desire to help, and then I didn't have to do that. And I sent him over there because the neighbor, who only speaks Spanish, sometimes gets upset when we cut our tree. I said, how's your Spanish? He says, good. I told him, okay, be ready. 
<laughs> she said, he said you, she watched you, but she didn't say anything, right? <laughs> Holy hands, set apart. He could have been doing other things. If our hands are only playing video games or are doing other things, whatever it may be, you know, how can we say these are holy hands? We need to lift up holy hands. By his grace, he forgives us for our sins so we can raise holy hands, regenerate by God. But the reality is, if, if I'm paying attention to who God wants me to be, I can worship him lifting holy hands. And, and that's part of what we discuss when we worship and we gather together, we sing these songs that Eric doesn't choose them because they have a nice tune. He looks at the lyrics and he understands that those lyrics are a reflection of what a gathered church should say unto God, what we want to say unto God. You know, oh, that day, you know, when we're no longer, there's no more sinning. Oh, that day. You know, we want to say that. And that helps us to say those things and worship together. And we lift up holy hands together, people set apart to do the work of God. Righteousness is our goal. And we learn that through his word, obviously. And then he adds, to finish it off, without wrath or dissent and dissension. Okay, he wouldn't say that otherwise unless he was addressing something going on. And as we mentioned, there could have been folks trying to um, intervene and, and cause Timothy to do his ministry differently than Paul intended, than God intended. And so that struggle would have been a place to bring in wrath and dissension. He's already offered a way to move away from that in that if we pray together, then the God who is leading us and directs us in his spirit brings us together. But I, I wanted to note that he had already written to the Ephesians, the same church in chapter four of, of the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote this, um, chapter four, verses one through three of Ephesians. Therefore, I, the prison of the Lord, employ you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with you have been called. That's holy, godliness, dignity, worthy of the manner which, which you have been called. And then he describes it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The mission we've been given requires us to do it together. The mission we have been given requires the multiple, the, the manifold grace of God to be demonstrated by us. That manifold grace of God is that if I'm here indwelt by the Spirit of God, having the knowledge of the Word of God, and I desire to represent Jesus Christ as best as he gives me the power to do so, I do that. But as soon as Debbie comes up and stands with me, and because she is indwelt with the Spirit of God and desires to honor God, the two of us represent him even better. And when all of us as a congregation come together to direct our attention at the purposes of God, that's when true Jesus Christ is best seen by a congregation that loves each other and loves him and demonstrates that by righteous living and with the same intent that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That heart is what God intended, the picture God intended for the church. Not a people huddled together and taking care of one another and just making sure that we don't have too many troubles to deal with, but a people who are fortifying one another, preparing one another so that we go out and we tell this world about who Jesus is and we're excited about it. It's the main message that we want to communicate. It's much more important than the things we normally talk about. 
It's much more important than the news of the day. The news of the day should be something that we step on in order to step into a discussion about, did you know that you will be judged? Did you know there's a Christ who saved you, who has desired to save you? Did you know that I was perishing in my sins and I was going to hell? But God intervened. He stopped me. He stopped me from going in that direction. He changed my heart. He made me new. He took my sin upon himself. I need to communicate that to people with enthusiasm, with passion. If we're laid back and saying, well, if someone ever comes up to me and says, hey, do you know how to get to heaven? We'll tell them. <laughs> well, that's not likely going to happen. You live passionately and righteously approaching the things of God the way that he intended. People will ask, why are you living that way? And they should, because it should be different. If people don't ask us, why are we living the way we're living? It's probably because we look just like them. There's no puzzle. There's no mystery. You, look just, you do the things I do. You say the things I say. You support the things I support. You're just like me. There's no need for a discussion. But if we live with the priority of God and the purposes of God, with that mission-mindedness, then people will have to say, why are you doing the things you do? Because it's not like me. I need to know them. And we can share with them the truth, the gospel. When we pray together, as we do every Sunday, I pray that we would be bringing down God's priorities with a passion. What does he want? He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so stand with me and we'll pray together that prayer and then sing a song to go out. Father, we pray for kings and all who are in authority. We pray that their decisions would be uh, that would infect us in a positive way, giving us opportunities, more opportunities to be able to go into the highways and the byways and, and even into the schools as you give us opportunity, however you would use us, Lord, to speak forth your truth and, and to be able to be uh, unrestrained in sharing the gospel. And we pray for the decisions that our authorities make, that this would still be our uh, reality. We pray you would keep them from chaining the message of the gospel, from hindering it from going out. We anticipate that could happen, Lord. We anticipate that there will be changes. We still pray. Um, we know that even in chaos, your kingdom can grow, and that's our prayer. Pray for all men that they come to be saved and to the knowledge of the truth, Lord. Our heart is to be useful in accomplishing that, Lord, in bringing forth that message, each one of us. We do it as a group. We do it as a congregation. But as you send us out, we have a mission. I pray we take it seriously. I pray we're excited about it. We have a truth that transcends all all other truths is more important than anything else anyone has to say is the truth about Christ. I pray we would recognize that and share it with confidence. As Paul prayed that you would give him utterance in the opening of his mouth, I pray that you would give us utterance as all we do is open our mouth and start sharing truth about Jesus. You will give us the words to say, and you will accomplish what you intend in that interaction. We are your missionaries. We are your ambassadors. Help us to be effective in it, Lord.
We ask this and we have confidence in the spirit of God who indwells us to accomplish this. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.